0: Uh, Today we are going to embark on a journey through the book of Acts. We're excited about this and we um, hope to bring some clarity to us as believers what the the, the church means in a worldwide context and then also what our role as believers is to the church. So we would desire that you come alongside of us, pick up your Bibles, and read in the book of Acts with us. Uh, You'll read about the forefathers, Of the church, and then the Holy Spirit, and the origin, the nature, and the function of church. So please, please do that with us. Uh, We would love for you to. Uh, The book of Acts, just a little overview, is written by a guy named Luke, and he's familiar to us because he wrote a gospel as well. The gospel of Luke and Acts are written, we believe, by the same individual. Now Luke is not one of the 12 disciples. He is, however, a disciple of The apostle paul and he's also one of his travel mates he is considered to be the only non-jewish writer of the entire new testament he is a physician by trade paul refers to him as my beloved physician and he's a little bit of a historian he concerns himself with getting things right and accurate and we kind of see this language and we see his desire early on in the gospel of luke and we're just going to read the introduction to the gospel of luke so we can kind of see Luke's concerned about getting things right. So join me. Inasmuch as many have under, undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have com- d- delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all these things to close, closely to, for, for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theopolis that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So Luke is really, really concerned about getting things right. In another translation, it says that I've investigated these things from the beginning and have wrote you an orderly account so you can have certainty in your faith. This is a really, really good thing for us. The book of Acts is kind of written between, they think, probably 63 AD and 70 AD. That's a long time ago. They come to this kind of consensus because of some of the things that are and are not talked about in the book of Acts. And here's kind of a cool thing, and I'm a little bit of a nerd about this. Um, In 1931, a guy named Frederick Kenyon wrote about a group of discovered manuscripts that contained text from the book of Acts. And they dated these manuscripts and they dated them back to 200 to 250 AD. And so, what we have physically in hand are copies from the book of Acts that date from about 150 years after Luke's original writing of them. And you may think that sounds like a, a kind of a big gap, but that is unheard of in historical text. The cool thing about the Bible is it has so much evidence. That it is what it is, and I could get on tangents here about this. The number of manuscripts that we have and the, the number of manuscripts that we have that are so close to the original date that they were written is unheard of in historical text. So because of these things, because of these documents that we have on hand, we can know the things that we read today in the book of Acts are actually the things that Luke wrote about. And it also gives us great expectations that this book is exactly what it says it is. And so the question is, what is the book of Acts? The book of Acts is the first written account of the early Christian church at a very crucial age in the church, right after the resurrection of Jesus and right before the Apostle Paul's death. This is a instrumental time in the Christian church in our foundation of ideas and belief and then the organization and movement of what becomes a worldwide movement of the church. So let's just for a moment step outside of our shoes and put ourselves in the shoes of a first century Christian around the time of AD 33. It's just crazy to have experienced the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus and now we see him ascend to heaven, and just before he has an ascension into heaven, Jesus tells us these words. So right out of the gate, first chapter, first verse, Acts 1 through 8, we'll read it together. In the first book, O Theopolis, now just to step out, the first book he's referring to is the Gospel of Luke that he's referring to, and just interesting, Theopolis Is an interesting term. It's an honorary name or title given to the person the book of Acts was written to. Theopolis means lover of God. So if we are a lover of God, this book was written for our benefit. All right, continue on. I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up. After he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostle whom he had chosen... Will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all of Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. This verse, this verse 8, is the mission statement of the entire book of Acts. It's the mission statement. It is what it is about. So if you're one person that likes to highlight or underline things in your Bible, verse 8 would be one to take note of because it is going to develop for us an outline of the entire book of Acts. We'll read it again because I want you to hear it. But you will receive the power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witness in Jerusalem and all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The outline looks like this. There are three things that this thing outlines for us. Number one, there's going to be a power, and that power is called the Holy Spirit. That there is a purpose, and that purpose is to be the witnesses to Jesus Christ in his worldly ministry and his words. And the third, the plan is Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the world. So we see really early on the power, the purpose, and the plan for the early church here. So really cool stuff to talk about. But today, we're just gonna deal with one of those three. We're gonna talk about the power. We're gonna talk about the Holy Spirit. And it's really an interesting topic of dialogue because so many people are in so many different spots with the role of the Holy Spirit. Now look, I'm going to try my best today to unpack this in a way that glorifies God. But there may be some of you in here that may feel like I've fallen short of its explanation. And look, I'm okay with that, as long as we're willing to have reasonable discussion without using our Bibles as weapons. Because in reality, we could spend 12 weeks just talking about the Holy Spirit and probably leave some things unturned. So the Holy Spirit just kind of makes a lot of us, when we hear that term, kind of a little nervous. You know, a little nervous when we hear the, the Holy Spirit. He's kind of the guy that walks in the room and you can't control and things get, get turned upside down. We tend to like, like Father, Son, Holy Bible. We're kind of, that's our comfort zone right there. The Holy Spirit can kind of make us feel uncomfortable because we can't, in a lot of ways at all, I should say at all, control the Holy Spirit. What I hope that we get out of reading the book of Acts is a consensus and a belief that we just can't control the Holy Spirit, that He's going to do some things in us that make us look a little bit crazy. So we're going to read about the Spirit coming, and we're going to unpack it a little bit after that. But before we do that, I want to give time to talk about the ascension that we see here early on in the book of Acts. So what I want to do is read verses 9 through 11 here in Acts 1. we don't give the ascension of Christ the due that it deserves. We often talk about the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, and then we fast forward to the second coming of Christ. The, Holy, the, the ascension of Christ has a lot of implications for us as believers. Just to point out a few of them, the ascension means for us that the sin sacrifice that Jesus made for us is now complete because the Father has received the sacrifice in heaven. Jesus is in heaven with the Father at his right hand. The other things that it means is now we have an advocate in heaven pleading on our behalf for our cause to the Father. And it very much means that we have a king in heaven that is going to come again someday in the very same manner that he went up there. And for our purposes today, the ascension of Christ symbolizes the end of the earthly ministry of Jesus. And it's because of that that he's going to send the helper, the Holy Spirit, who will enable us to be witnesses to Jesus's Actions and his words. The ascension of Christ means for us the Holy Spirit in here, is here because Jesus, by his own choosing, is somewhat limited of physical location. The Holy Spirit is not bound by the same manner. So a little bit about the ascension. It's important that we know it. And it's important that we note that the Holy Spirit has been around forever. This isn't the first time after the ascension that the Holy Spirit Comes upon the world. If we read in Genesis, in the first chapter, starting in verse 2, we see the Spirit of God moving upon creation. And if we read our Bibles, we see the Spirit of God showing up time and time again throughout the Old Testament and even into the New Testament. So let's read a little bit about the Holy Spirit here in Acts, verse, verses, Acts 2, verses 1 through 13. And at this sound, the multitudes came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native tongue? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia and Phyrega and Pamphylia and Egypt and all parts of Liberia belonging to Cyrene and the visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes and Cretans and Arabians. Catch my breath. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mock, saying, they are filled with new wine. So what do these passages mean? What, what do we notice in them? If we remember back to the ascension, Jesus said for us, for the believers at that time, the disciples and the believers, to stay put. And we know this from the Passover feast to this harvest festival feast called Pentecost that celebrates the commands given on Mount Sinai. There is 50 days. So the disciples and the believers are waiting for maybe months? A month? We're not sure. But it's important that we know that the the spirit falling is not unique to the Pentecost. It is synonymous to the name Pentecost, but Pentecost was a festival that happened. And this is why these Jews were all gathered in Jerusalem. So we see the mighty wind blowing in, we hear the sounds, and then we see tongues being spoken that people from every part of the world who are Jews are able to hear the mighty works of God in their own language. And this is a quite intriguing story if we know our Bibles. This parallels a story in some ways to a story that we read in Genesis 11 about the Tower of Babel. And if you know the Tower of Babel, what it says is at this point, at the time frame of Genesis 11, all the world had one language that everybody understood. And these men representing different parts of the world had gathered in a plane and said, it would be good for us to set up shop here in the plane that we can all bring our people together and build a giant city. And within that city, we'll build a tower that touches the heavens. And God looks down and sees his people. And he says this, he says, If these men are unified under one voice, there is nothing that they can't accomplish. And so God confuses their language, and they can no longer understand each other, and they disperse to the ends of the earth. So when I read the Tower of Babel, I think, well, that sounds like a good thing. People are unified. They're doing great things. There's some reasons behind why God does this. And I'm not going to try to speculate on what the reasonings of God, but we can read into the story and and read into some commentaries and and just really take a a really good um, guess at what's happening here. What we know is that God wants us to be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth, to settle to the ends of the earth. What is happening in the story of the Tower of Babel is people are gathering in one place and trying to set up shop in one spot. God does not want that. The second thing, and I think this is really important, we don't see God mentioned anywhere in the midst of these guys' activities. God has not brought in for counsel. He's not sought for for help in all this. These men are doing this for themselves to say, look what we have done. Look what I did. They are trying to bring glory to themselves, and God sees very quickly these men trying to dethrone God and make the earth their own invention. So he confuses their language. And this is a great parallel because the story of the Tower of Babel, between the story of the Tower of Babel and the story of Pentecost, just in reverse. At Pentecost, we see God unifying His people again under one Spirit, that all people can hear the mighty works of God again through the Spirit of God. So we notice this. In the early church, one of the major functions, and it is the Is it present in the early church? And it should be present now. One of the major functions of the Holy Spirit, and we're going to talk about two today that we see in these early texts in Acts. Now, there are multiple roles of the Holy Spirit. We're going to talk about two big ones today. One of the major functions of the Holy Spirit is to unite God's people. It's to unite God's people. What is different this time around than the Tower of Babel is the work is done by God. The unity is done to bring glory to the Father and is coordinated by the Holy Spirit and not through the efforts of men. And unity, friends, is of the utmost concern and importance to Jesus Christ for his followers and his church. This is what he says in the Gospel of John, chapter 16. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through through their word, And we see this oneness, this unity present in the early church. And it's beautiful. If we read it in Acts 2 and Acts 4, this is what it says in Acts 4, verses 32 through 33. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon all of them. And so when I this week read these texts about the early church and the, the Holy Spirit descending upon his people and unifying them in such an incredible fashion, and then with my own eyes, I look into the world, I think, "Well, what in the heck happened? What happened? In 2012, there was a study that released that said there were over 30,000 different denominations amongst the Christian church in the world. 30,000. That's crazy numbers when we hear God desperately trying to tell us that we are better together. Now, my personal viewpoint is that Christians divide way too easily. If we see Jesus specifically talking that we should be one, I believe that it would be better for us to emphasize what we have in common because there's a lot of things that we have in common and a little less about the things that we disagree or dislike. Because the same attitudes that plague the people of Babel are the same hurdles that we face today. We far too often concern ourselves with what is best for us, what is best for me, and not what is best for God's people and his church. Look, we have so much in common there is so much that we agree about. There is so much that we can rejoice in. Do we really need to treat the church like a day at the movies? Where we rate it and talk about things that we liked and didn't like, far too often leaning into the negative. Could we place less expectations on what the church should do for us and more expectations on us For what we should do for the church. Because if we love God, this is his bride, the one that he loves, and the believers in Christ should look to give what they can to sustain and move the church. Here's some reality, and I want you to hear this from me, not as one of the leaders of this church, but as a fellow believer and lover of God. It is not the job of the church to entertain us, it has never been its responsibility. It is not the job of the church to make you feel loved or to grow your spiritual walk. That is our personal responsibility as believers and lovers of God. It is not the job of the church to raise our kids, to teach them the Bible, or to make them love God. That is our responsibility as godly mamas and daddies and grandmas and grandfathers. It's not the job of the church to save our marriages. And it is not the job of our church to give you friends. Now the church can come alongside of you in all of those areas, but it is not the job of the church to do those things for us. What the physical representation of the church on earth is, is a place to belong, a place to be prayed for, a place to be encouraged, a place to share our burdens and to rejoice with one another, and then to sit under great gospel teaching of the word of god and submit to it and to be trained to do the work and equipped to do the work of ministry ourselves and then to come together as one unified voice praising and proclaiming the mighty works of god that is the job of the church and we see these attributes early and often here in the early parts of acts and we see paul writing about them in ephesians 4. if Your expectations for the church are more than that. I promise you, you will be disappointed. promise you, you will be disappointed because the best of men are men at best. So I would pray that we reevaluate our expectations for the church. We cannot allow the forces of a consumeristic culture to, that teaches us to pick and choose things based upon what they look like and how we feel about them, to continue to divide our churches and us as believers. It's getting silly. If we could just put down our own agendas and learn from the example of a guy like Barnabas, who so impactfully exemplifies for us And later in this book of Acts to see the grace that is inside of us and to be glad. To see within each other God working, maybe not the same way that he's working in me, but if we see God working in somebody's life, big or small, to be glad. To look past our own physical representations of ourselves and others. What we look like, how we dress, what kind of house we live in, what kind of car that we drive, the places that we visited, the positions that we hold, what we know, who we know, how active we are, and to see the grace that is inside of us, to see the Spirit of God that works inside of those who believe, and to be glad. If we could do that and not find petty differences, we could unify under the banner of of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. And God says that there is nothing that man cannot do when he's unified under one voice, the power of the Holy Spirit. So could we find ways to come together? Could we find ways to come together and not try to find ways to divide us? The second thing that we see early in the the book of Acts is the Spirit's function to lead people into a daily obedience. To lead people into a daily obedience. What we see early is just like this scene of of the disciples and the believers just kind of, we're waiting. They're just kind of huddled together, moving around, not wanting to get caught, uh, because this is a really really tough time for believers. And then all of a sudden, the Spirit comes on the scene, and a flurry of activity begins to happen. In just chapters 2 and 3 alone, we see Peter giving an emboldened speech, empowered by the Holy Spirit, and 3,000 people are baptized. The church comes together, and they sell possessions. They share with one another. They care for the needy. They pray and rejoice with one another. They have favor with all men, and their numbers are added to day by day. And then we watch John and Peter walk into the beautiful gate and heal a lame man from birth. And then Peter, with a brazen confidence, walks into the temple and gives a Holy Spirit-given speech about the divinity, nature, resurrection of who Jesus Christ is in front of the same people that conspired to kill Jesus, not... A month or two before. Now let us take note that this is the same Peter that not a few months ago just denied Jesus three times. It's incredible stuff that's beginning to happen here. So we see early in the, the early church here in Acts the Spirit's ability to lead each of us, to lead those who believe in a day to day obedience of God's command. And then in moments when God wants to heighten our awareness, awareness and use us in bold and profound ways. God clothes his believers with power on high and we begin to see people do things that are outside of the norm of life. And if I could just step out and talk about this second part, these, this clothed in power from on high, this heightened awareness. I, I have never, just to be honest, I have never healed anybody. I have never, <laughs> it's fine. I have never watched somebody healed in front of me. Now we've came out of a series where we watched God miraculously heals some pretty incredible people here through the stories like Loretta and Tony. But I've never seen a foot grow back. I've never talked in tongues, and I've never seen it done authentically, just to let you know. Do I believe they exist? Absolutely. I absolutely believe they exist. It's quite evident in Scripture that they do. And I will pray that God shows me the supernatural, and I pray that he uses me in supernatural ways. But here's what I won't do. I won't feel like I'm broken or I don't have enough things because I don't have these. And I don't want anybody in this room to feel that same way because, listen to me, although very, very real, the supernatural has never anchored anyone to long-term faithfulness to Jesus Christ. It brings attention to the Father. It brings attention to Jesus, but it does not anchor our faith long-term in Jesus Christ. And we see this time and time again in the Bible. How do the Israelites who were rescued miraculously out of Egypt, and then the Red Sea is parted and they walk on dry land across the Red Sea, Not a month later, boil their gold, build a calf out of gold and worship it. It's because the supernatural and the miracles will not sustain the soul. They will give attention to Jesus, but Jesus Christ is the only one who will sustain our soul. And it's important that we understand that we seek the giver of the gifts and not the gifts themselves. So at Pentecost, we see the Holy Spirit falling down and people doing crazy things so the question that we have to ask is what does it mean to be led by the spirit paul talks about this in galatians 5 verses 15 through 18. this is what paul says but i say walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh for they these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do but if you're led by the spirit you are not under the law so to be led by the spirit it becomes it comes in part from a belief that you are no longer under the law that you are under the gospel of grace that we have an active spirit living inside of all of us who believe and that spirit is able to overcome our fleshly desires Paul poignantly writes about this struggle in verse 17 where he says that the flesh and the Spirit oppose each other that would keep us from doing the things that we want to. And so the Spirit leads us in actively becoming more and more like the nature of Christ. And we've talked about this from this platform. It's called sanctification. The Spirit helps us to defeat our sinful nature, to kill our sinful desires, not on a defensive posture, but actively attacking our sinful desires by a bubbling up and a raising up of positive attributes of godly character. And we call these positive attributes the fruits of the Spirit. And they're listed here in Galatians 5. We'll read together the fruits of the Spirit. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And the, those who belong to Christ have been crucified, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So what we see is the, the Spirit's ability to heighten within us and to build within us positive attributes of godly character, who ha, which have the ability to overcome our sin. And to be led by the Spirit means this. means we have to be submissive, submissive, submissive to the Spirit. Just like you cannot drive a car from the trunk, the Spirit of God and the Holy Spirit has a hard time leading a heart that doesn't want to be guided or led. And so this is kind of how this works out in my life. This is kind of how the, like, kind of the Spirit works in my life. The Spirit has allowed me to have kind of this focus of God in my thoughts. I have this thinking through the day of like, all right, God, what do you want me to do here? Uh, what do you want me to say, Lord? It's just this constant inner thought that's going on. God, I really messed that up. Help me get out of this. What do I do? Lord, thank you for that. And I'm just going to let you know that there are times that I don't listen to that thing. And, and I am a moron for periods of time. And then God comes with a two-by-four and smacks me in the head and tries to get me on path. But this is kind of what the Spirit it does in my life. And it allows me to act differently than I would as Steve Serbo in the flesh in scenarios. And this is kind of how that works out. There was a scenario a few years ago where I contracted somebody for services. And in the midst of this um, journey with this person... I got a phone call from him, and I just got chewed out on the phone. Didn't see it coming. Did not see it coming at all. Just just totally unloaded on me on the phone. And I'm sitting there thinking, what did I I do? And trying to hold back tears. No, I wasn't holding back tears. And within me became this internal conversation. The Spirit had this conversation that came up to me that said, okay, God, how do I do you well here? And after this guy, what felt like hours just unloading on me, it wasn't, it was like minutes. But that's what it feels like when people are getting mad at you, right? Just hours. I had a chance to respond. And I'm telling you, these words were not my own. I have no idea how these kind of responded. I empathized with this guy. That doesn't make any sense. empathized with him, tried to take as much blame as I possibly could own in that situation, which is really none. And then I let him know that I really thought highly of him and that I wanted to see again and I hope I wished him well. All of these things I believed. I wasn't lying to them. They just came out. No way Steve Serval acts that way. You know what happens? This guy calls me the next day, apologizes profusely, invites me into his office, and tells me the story of his life, and I get to glorify God in the process. I cannot take any credit for that. That is the Holy Spirit working in my life. So the Spirit just doesn't lead us into killing our fleshly desires. It also leads us into doing the things that God commands us to do, like loving our neighbors and loving our enemies. It is the Spirit that enables us to do that. It's the Spirit that enables us to make disciples, and the Spirit even enables us to love God. So, a question that would be really good for us to consider is how are you being led by the Holy Spirit of God? How are you being led by the Holy Spirit of God? It's funny, this week I had a friend stop by here and we were just talking and the Holy Spirit was brought up in a conversation without my prompting. And he was telling me about a group where somebody asked this very same question. How are we led by the Holy Spirit of God? And this gentleman who I was talking to answered it this way. And I find this answer to be real, pretty brilliant. He says, when I am led by the Holy Spirit of God, I tend to do things that are uncomfortable for me. I tend to do things that are uncomfortable for me because when I do uncomfortable things, I can't take any credit for it. But when I sit and I'm comfortable in my relationship with Jesus, I can take all kinds of credit if I want to. So is our job to bring glory to God or is it to bring glory to ourselves? I think this is a really, really good answer. and I think it says well, kind of in a simplistic form, what it means to be led by the Spirit. In the book of Acts, in this early, beautiful state of the church, we see followers doing all sorts of things that we might find uncomfortable today. Selling their possessions, right? Sharing with one another, giving to the needy, praying, rejoicing, sharing their burdens, and then giving emboldened speeches where 3,000 people are baptized, just to name a few things. Now, does the Spirit work this way in everybody probably not but it could but that's what the spirit wants to do it wants to move inside of us it wants to shake things up and sometimes for as much as the spirit would like to do we kind of get in the way we kind of can get in the way because we sometimes don't remember it and quite frankly sometimes we're just not really dependent on it and let's just be really honest there's not many of us in this room that struggle with thinking of where we're going to find our next meal there's not many of us in this room that don't know where we're going to sleep tonight. Not many, if any, people worry about being dragged out in the middle of the night out of their house because of what they believe. Not many people, if any, are worried about their families being killed for their profession of Jesus Christ as Lord. And there are not many people here are concerned with staying one step in front of somebody who would like to capture and harm them. We have a pretty good ride. We've got a good ride here. We are pretty self-dependent on ourselves. We don't need God. In a lot of ways, we tend to, to lead ourselves to believe that we can take care of ourselves. There isn't much that we believe that we can't fix through hard work and effort. And I say this to caution us that we might not forget that we have the Holy Spirit of God, God's power living inside of us Maybe we verbally don't say it, but we sure do act like it. What we see in this early church is not a group of people who believe the Holy Spirit is something that they possess. It literally is the air that they breathe. It is all that they have, and it is their driving force. Maybe this week, as we come together around this book of Acts and and do our own investigation and in our own reading in these early chapters, that the Spirit of God might stir up within us as we see these forefathers of our church just being dependent on the Spirit, that it might motivate us to be a little less self-dependent and a little bit more God-dependent. The Spirit of God leads us into a day-to-day obedience and then at times heightens our awareness and we get to do bold things for the name of Jesus. So maybe we should just start this week with making that our prayer, that God would show us our need for the Spirit, that He would increase within us a desire to be led by the Spirit, to consciously seek Him in what we're trying to do. So let's end our time together by just going together in prayer and pray for that together as a body. Father, I just come to you today and I just thank you for just this time together. Lord, I do pray that you would move within the walls of this church and in the hearts of our congregation that we might have the fog lifted from our eyes and our brains and understand that we have the Holy Spirit of God resting in our lives, that we have the power to overcome sin, we have the power to walk in daily obedience with you, and we have the power to influence people because of your great works and your great word. Lord, would you bring clarity this week of how we walk with you? Will you bring openness to our lives so we can see areas where we just want to control, that we, we have the control of our lives and we just refuse to give it over to you, that, Lord, you might motivate us to release some things to you this week. Father, we love you and thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. And we pray this in the name of Jesus who does for us what we cannot. Amen.